So my colleague Cliff is joining us again today as we dive in deeper on racism. And we're going to start by trying to define what racism even means today and why it can be difficult to have these conversations and why they're so polarizing. So I hope that you find this conversation helpful as we continue to grow our capacity to have these meaningful conversations about race. If you're like me, you know your mind can be your best or your worst friend. Our mind is an amazing tool that can do incredible things, but our mind can also create problems out of nowhere. Sometimes our mind keeps recommending the same solutions to problems even when they aren't working. I see this pattern play out as individuals try to overcome their anxiety, depression, or even struggles with pornography, using approaches that make sense but aren't very helpful. This podcast will show you how real researchers and clinicians are changing the way we approach mental health and reveal helpful research-supported principles designed to help real people with real problems. My name is Dr. Cameron Staley, and welcome to the Life After Series Radio. So we're back. You know, this week went by quickly, and I was really looking forward to spending some more time with you, Cliff, to kind of go a little bit deeper on our topic of racism. I feel like there's so much to cover here. And I think a lot of the challenges around racism come from we're using that term. And I think we assume we all know what that means. But I think racism, that definition has changed quite a bit over the years. And then we're probably all thinking about it in different ways or different aspects. So I think it might be helpful just to try to get a working definition of racism. You want to take a shot at that? How do you define racism? Yeah, I, I think it's a really important thing to discuss. And it reminds me of a story a friend of mine told me. She was uh, talking to her uncle, this was probably two years ago. And they had this really long debate, about an hour-long debate, about whether or not racism exists. Mm. And at the end of that hour-long debate, and she was saying, like, yes, racism still exists today. And her uncle was saying, no, racism doesn't exist today. And at the end of that hour, what they realized is that when they were using the word racism, they were thinking of two completely different things. Whoa, using the same yeah. word, but different ideas. Yeah, because the uncle was thinking about it the way I think America thought about it 50 years ago or even 30 years ago, potentially, which is like, you know, a white person goes up to a black person and injures them physically in some way or yells derogatory words at them and doesn't even know them, but they just kind of this outward overt hatred. Yeah. And I think for a lot of people, when they think the word racism, they think of an active, conscious dislike for people simply based on race. And what my friend's definition of racism was, was inequities in our society mm. and not equal opportunities or equal access to things due to race. And so when they were having that conversation, they were disagreeing, but the fundamental disagreement wasn't so much about our society and what's true today. It was more about their difference in terms of how they define that word. Wow. And as you talked about, I think my definition of racism, I mean, the first one that comes along that's automatic is those overt um, acts of violence. Like I think about a burning cross on a lawn or someone yep. in a white hood. Yep, yep. These KKK rallies where, in my mind, that is such an overt act of 
um, violence and hate yeah. that I would consider that's evil. Like I associate like racism with evilness and violence. And I think m the majority of people would say, yeah, that's racist. That's not okay. There's probably a subset of people that are still support that, but I think that group has probably shrunk quite a bit um, as the years have gone on. But the one that you talked about that seems more systemic or widespread or less person to person is a lot more difficult to look at. And I think I'm thinking about racism more in those terms now, but honestly, that takes me more effort to define that and understand that than like, that burning cross is clearly a racist act and that is bad. Yeah, right. Or using certain words are racist oh, yeah. and that is bad. Like, I think, yeah, you know, we can all agree there are certain words that are racist words yeah. and 90 or hopefully more percent of America would say, yeah, the use of that word is not okay. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think that's a big difference is that when people are talking about systemic racist, racism they're not talking about the use of a particular word or you know a, a physical act one person hurting another person and i agree with you it takes a lot more effort to understand that and i think a big reason why is that they're not really tangible the same way yeah. those overt acts are tangible because if i use a racist word we all hear it and we can agree that it is racist or not racist but when it comes to these broader societal things it's like how do you put your finger on it or, or how do you point to it to say hey this thing is real it exists yeah i think that's a lot more complicated and i think why we're having disagreements and see things differently like i think our nation when george floyd got killed in such a callous way i think the majority of us could agree that was not okay mm -hmm. but then the reasons why he got killed that's debatable yeah. And people are looking like, well, no, it's it's not these patterns, like that was just an incident, one bad person, that was a racist person. Others are saying, no, this is a pattern. Like we're seeing people of color dying by cops at two to three times the rate of white people. That's a pattern, that's systemic racism. But others are saying, no, like George was associated with criminal activity and um, may have been high at that time. Like that's an individual thing. This is not a pattern. I think a lot of the differences are coming to that. Like we view mm -hmm. racism as a person doing something bad to another person. But I think we're talking about racism could be much broader, that it could be an approach that shows up um, in policing or with laws or access to voting or healthcare or housing. That is something we're seeing where there is a really consistent disadvantage for people of color kind of across society. And for me, it, it seems like so global, it, it is really hard to see it. Um, and I think I grew up not even recognizing my advantages and opportunities and seeing that someone else would be disadvantaged because it's so pervasive, I, it's really hard to see. And I think hmm. that's where a lot of the maybe conflict seems to be occurring, at least in my perspective, is we, we agree what someone doing something to somebody else is racist, but when we pan out and say, but there's a bigger pattern here. I think I see a lot more um, disagreement about that. Yeah, which I think makes a lot of sense. You know, you mentioned the effort piece already in terms of it takes more effort to think about it from that broader perspective. I think there's other factors that contribute too. that, you know, one is we're not really taught that. Like oh. I, I, I wasn't taught that in my K through 12 education about those sorts of things. Um, 
we also have uh, I don't remember what I was gonna say. <laughs> I had really some, profound though. It was it was like the greatest thought I've ever had in my life, but uh, it's totally gone now. So yeah. So sometimes in my mind, I might have mentioned this last time, I have to simplify things for me just to, to remember what it is I'm talking about, because sometimes I can get lost in the weeds. So for me, a, a really simple definition of racism is just believing that a particular race is better than another one. And that might be like oversimplifying things, but that helps me look at it. So when I'm having conversations with somebody about like police violence or um, kind of working or achievement in education, whenever I start to hear that this group of people is not as good as another group of people, that kind of triggers this sense in me because I have a belief and it's in our constitution that all people are created equal. And that for me is a, a big T truth, something that I follow, that I believe that resonates with me deep inside. So when I see that people have different levels of opportunity or accomplishment or access to healthcare or employment or are incarcerated at different rates than others, for me, the only explanation that makes sense to me is racism at a systematic level. Um, because I do feel like people are created equal. That is a fundamental belief that I have. And so when there's these huge disparities, it's gotta be coming from something. And it's not just individuals that's causing that, it's, it's more that system level, which is really uncomfortable to think about. Yeah, and what you're talking about segues perfectly into the thought that I had lost, which oh, is that, yeah, which is that when we think about those things you're talking about that are broader, unemployment rate, incarceration rate, things like that, we're not talking about one individual, right? We're talking about a, a huge group of people, or in a lot of cases, we're talking about all of America. That's 330 million people or whatever. And so when we talk about these big picture issues, I think one of the, the challenges to understanding them is that the reality is there could be multiple different forces at play. Mm. Um, like if we think about incarceration rates, there are disparities in terms of race, but I don't know this for sure, but if we looked it up, I would imagine there's also disparities in terms of class or like oh, sure. economic status, right? So the more wealthy you are, the less likely you probably are to be incarcerated. The less wealthy you are, the more likely you are to be incarcerated. So yeah. I think that's part of then what creates challenges for people looking at the broader view and coming to the same conclusion. Because if mm -hmm. we look at the data and it says, well, yeah, incarceration rates are also disproportional based on economics, yeah. well, then somebody might say, this has nothing to do with race. This yeah. is actually about economics. Just money, yep. Yeah. Yeah. And I think I'm someone I enjoy money and working hard and earning money. Um, I think I had a friend growing up. He's like, I think you have a cash register for a heart. And I, and I hope that isn't true, <laughs> but it might be a little true sometimes. Uh, but I think about wealth and I've just been researching the wealth disparities across ethnic lines. And it's stunning to think about that white families might have 10 times the wealth of a family of uh, people that are black 10 times. And I think about that wealth, I'm like, where does that come from? And a lot of this goes back to, I don't remember if I talked about this last time, but I used to sell real estate and 
And when I was going through the real estate learning process, um, part of the curriculum was learning about redlining. And I thought about like, what is this? Like, I never heard of this before. I'm like, this is stupid. This is silly. I'm sure that probably isn't a thing. And now I see the impact of redlining and how it contributes to wealth disparity, where there would be regions of a city or area where they would actually trace it in red lines on a map. Say, on a map, yeah. And be like, we're not going to um, provide loans to these areas. And if you're a person of color, you're going to live here. And so the housing values and prices were really depressed in those areas. And I thought about like, so much wealth is acquired in our country through home ownership. Yeah, through property. Through property, yeah. And so for a long time, for generations, people of color were not allowed to own property. Legally. Like it was illegal. Law. Yeah. And if then you were in the last few decades, um, you were owning property in areas that did not appreciate. Yep. It did not have a lot of value. And so I think about like, you know, I have worked hard. I have gone to school. I have studied well. I'm a good employee. And I think all that is true. But I think about some of my family settled property 150 plus years ago. And I've been a beneficiary of that inheritance, even though it's a small sliver of what was initially settled. But I think about that as a privilege that's only extended to people that look like me. Mm -hmm. And I don't really think about that, but that's really given me a leg up to have a little bit of boost really early on in my life as I'm raising a family and going to school. I had a little cushion there. And that cushion didn't come from any hard work on my part. Right. It really just came from, I had ancestors that were industrious and worked hard and farmed, but they were legally allowed to settle property. And that has not been the case system-wide. And so I think some people are like, well, that happened so long ago, slavery was so long ago. It's like, but I've received benefits just because my family generations ago could own property. And that's just one small example about how that wealth and that generations has benefited me, whereas people of color do not have that same advantage. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's such a good example of multiple things. One of which is that privilege, you know, like some people had access to something, which was the ownership of property that other people did not. That's a perfect example of privilege. Um, it's not, like to have privilege doesn't mean that someone was something was necessarily taken away from someone but it means that a certain person or group of people have easier access to something than other people and if we look throughout our history like clearly slavery is easy to look at and say that was not okay yeah and then you exactly what you said you always get the argument of well that was so long ago okay sure if, if that's your opinion that a couple hundred years 150 years is so long ago but there's all these other ways in which that people who identify as black or are perceived as black have been denied access to things in our country ever since then. And I think when we talk about voting and access to voting, that's another kind of really hotly debated thing yeah. um, because people say like, oh, why does that matter? Just take the day off of work or you know, drive your car down to the voting station or whatever. But if you look at rural areas or you look at certain urban areas, they're really densely populated people don't have the same access to go vote that certain other people do. And that would be another example of privilege. And that was that I learned that principle. I lived in um, St. Louis. Um, I served as a, a missionary for my church for a couple of years. And one of the areas I was in was East St. Louis. And there was just a ton of poverty there. 
Um, there was not a lot of industry. And I remember getting to know this one family really well. And they had one vehicle for several of the families and they all shared it. And I was always like, why don't you all have a vehicle? I mean, that didn't make sense to me. Like growing up, we had two vehicles and I just like, wow, why do they share a vehicle? It's so inconvenient. Mm-hmm. Like they got to take turns and they got to coordinate that. Like mm-hmm. it seriously did not cross my mind that there may not have, that may not be affordable um, to have more than one car per family. And to think about how that makes it challenging to get to work or to school or to vote. Um, and in my mind, it's like, hey, why don't you get another one? That would solve the problem. Mm-hmm. It didn't even cross my mind that there may not be opportunities to purchase something that I just take for granted is, yeah, when I turn 16, my, my folks are going to help me get a car. Yep. I think that that on the one hand, that is so sad, right? That we grow up in ways where we struggle so much to understand a different person's experience. But on the other hand, I think that's such a good example of what we all do. So we all have our own lived experience. And then we look at someone else's life and we look at their life through our lens of our lived experience. So I remember I was having this conversation with a friend of mine a few years ago, and he worked at a middle school that had some students at it that came from really, really low uh, economic, socioeconomic backgrounds. And uh, his dad was a lawyer and did really well financially. And then he, you know, his dad paid for him to go to private college, paid for him to go get a master's degree, no student loans, no debt, nothing provided transportation for him. He didn't have to work while he went to school, et cetera. Oh, and he also went to private school from like, I don't know, sixth grade through 12th grade, like expensive private school. So he and I are having this debate one day and he's like, you know, why don't these families, they're so poor, just work harder. And I was like, okay, well, let's talk about this. And we broke it down and we got to a place where the question I asked him was, okay, think about your life and your background and how hard you worked because you did work hard. Think about how hard you worked to get to where you are today. You have a master's degree, et cetera. Think about one of those kids that's in your school, seventh grade girl, single parent, multiple siblings, and that single parent works at a fast food restaurant. Not because they're not hardworking, but because that's the only job they can get based on their education, their circumstances, lack of transportation, et cetera. Is that seventh grade girl going to have the equal opportunity to achieve in her life what you've been able to achieve in your life? And when you put it like that for him, he was like, well, no, of course not. But if I called him today and asked him, hey, do you believe in privilege? Do you believe in systemic oppression? He'd say no. So Mm. when we create those examples Mm. that actually lay it out for us and we can kind of see the disparities or the the lack of equality firsthand, we get it. Like, okay, no, that's not fair. A rich white kid growing up in an upper middle class neighborhood with really good schools is going to have a little bit easier time getting to medical school someday than a poor kid in a really impoverished neighborhood with garbage schools like yes it's going to be harder for one of those people to achieve the same thing we can see it when we break it down in those examples but because we only i think because we only have our lived experience when you just start driving by on the street and you see someone you just assume that their life has been similar to yours and so if they don't have what you have you chalk it up to things like work ethic or discipline or whatever and we even have a term for that in social psychology, that attribution error. Yeah. So when we see other people, we tend to label them as having a flaw or a trait. So they're not successful because they're lazy. Yeah. So we're describing something very internal about them. But if we get fired, 
we're not going to identify ourselves as lazy. We're going to say, well, my boss didn't understand me or, you know, my alarm didn't go off that day. It was something external. It was situational. It, it doesn't have to do about me. And I haven't ever thought about that until I was listening to you, but I think we do that because we're seeing it through our lived experience so much. And so we just attribute these internal dispositions to other people's lack of successes. I mean, instead of recognizing, oh, there's environmental things around them as well that's contributing those dis disparities that we're seeing. Right, right. Yeah, when other people are struggling, it's because of character flaws. Yep. But when we're struggling, it's because of external circumstances. Yeah, yep. absolutely. And I think that's one of the reasons that it makes it so easy for us to not see privilege and oppression. Because when we think about our own lives, we think about, well, I worked hard for what I have. I, I went to school. I studied. I had late nights of reading books and cramming for tests. Yeah. We were both there, Cliff. We worked yeah. really hard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, which is true. And then we lose sight of that bigger picture, that broader perspective that, yeah, I worked hard, but I also had less barriers in my path than certain other people did. And one of those barriers that does exist in America is race and racism. So you were talking about having seen some statistics that could potentially be indicative of these broader systemic factors of oppression. You mean like with wealth and kind of the increased rates of kind of police violence? Is that what you're talking about? Yeah, and the incarceration pieces and yeah. um, things like that. That we, we now have data that are nationwide that we can look at and say, okay, well, if this racial group is incarcerated at this percentage and this racial group is incarcerated at one third that rate, but I believe all people are equal, then there has to be another explanation for these differences. I think that comes back to our definition of racism. So believing that one race is superior to another. And I think about there's other terms that we throw out there that are really uncomfortable for me to hear. And, and one of those is white supremacy. Or mm -hmm. I'm like, I ain't no white supremacist. Like that's a, again, one of those terms I'd say that's immoral. That's in that evil camp. It's not okay to be a white supremacist. Right. But I think and, the, you, and the images that that conjures for us when we hear that term, especially as white people, I think for me, it conjures, like you were saying earlier, the white hoods, yep. the burning crosses, like that's what comes in my head when I hear that term. I think that's my first reaction too. But what else could it be, Cliff? Let me hear your take on when you think about underlying that, what else does white supremacy encompass? Wow, that's a tough question to try to answer. That's why I asked you first. <laughs> I think, okay, so maybe the, the way to approach that that feels easiest in my brain for an example would be laws, to look mm -hmm. at laws. And the, the easiest example that I can think of is historical. So a lot of people could discount it, but hopefully it will illustrate my point. So we were talking about property and property ownership. Mm -hmm. If you go back to certain cities as late as like the 1950s or something, black people, and even in some cities like Asian people, it depended on that area, were not legally allowed to own property or they were only allowed to own property in these certain places. Yeah. So we literally wrote these, raw, these laws that favor people with white skin. Like that is white supremacy because you're essentially creating an unequal playing field 
and you're specifically putting the white people up on that higher, easier playing field and specifically putting people of color down on that lower, more difficult playing field. So that would be an example of white supremacy in my mind. I think that is an example where it's like, oh yeah, that's really clear cut. And I think about that's where my mind goes and I want to stay there because the other ones are way more uncomfortable for me. Yep. And I think any example of white supremacy is believing that any race is inferior to white. Yeah. And it's so subtle. Like I have conversations with family and neighbors um, where it's like, yeah, I lived in this city and, you know, those people didn't work as hard. That's why they didn't get there. Yep. And I would never typically say that's white supremacist language or conversation or beliefs or views, mm -hmm. but it's believing that your racial group is superior. I mean, it's doing better because of their ethnic background. And, and if I would call it out to my friends and family, and sometimes I do gently to have that conversation, they would say, no, I don't, I'm not racist. I don't, it's not what I meant. Um, I just, I just see these people and we've given them opportunities and they're not taking them. And it's like, that yeah, that's language is so offensive. It's, it's still that language. And these right. are people that say, I am not a racist. Yeah. And I go back to, well, what's our definition of racism? Yeah. And if it's you believe a group is not as good as another group, that's racism. And in our country, it tends to be that white supremacist view. But our association with that, again, is like, that is evil. I am not a white supremacist. Yeah. But if you believe your ethnic group is better, that's the definition of supremacy. Yeah. But that feels so awful to feel associated with that, where I'm like, no, I don't want anything to do with that. And right. yet I find that language, that language has come out of my mouth before. Um, to mm -hmm. describe groups of people and now i feel like i'm a little bit more aware of it and i hear it in a lot of my dialogues we tend to other people and group oh, yeah. all of the time and i think that's human behavior we categorize things that's how language works so i don't even think it's that intentional what i would say like overtly racist but it still is happening it still is racist language yeah absolutely there are so many examples and i think about so like a more modern day perspective on white supremacy, I believe would be how businesses, corporations in America define the word professionalism. Oh, yeah. I've thought about this a lot recently too. This is a big one. Yeah. Right. Cause you think about it. Like if, if somebody comes up to you and says, yeah, you know, my workplace has this policy around professionalism. Like what do you envision in your mind? What sort of clothes? what sort of jewelry, what sort of hairstyles, what sort of makeup, like it is, it's all stereotypically white. It's like, you know, white culture in America had this perspective of what was professional dress and business quality dress dating back to who knows when, probably the industrial revolution or something, maybe even before that, I don't know. But you can see these suits and like, sure, the style of the suit changes over time, but over time, it's always a white man in that suit. Yep. And then I think in the last few decades, professionalism has started to make room for women, but they've got to wear certain types of clothes. They've got to fit in certain types of ways. They've got to not show certain parts to the body. They've got to have their hair done in certain types of ways. Their jewelry and accessories have to be certain types of things. And who has created that definition of professionalism? Yeah. White people. I've seen that a lot in, oh, go ahead. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. I, I think this is the crux of it, is that if you don't fit that definition, your boss can evaluate you less. 
and yeah. and nobody's gonna argue with that like if you have an evaluation that says like employee is unprofessional or employee was terminated from employment due to unwillingness to follow dress code like no lawyer i don't think is gonna be able to say like oh that's super problematic that you did that or you evaluated that person that way and so i think historically everybody has agreed on what professionalism is and we've all felt like yeah you need to fit that mold of professionalism but the problem in my mind is that's white supremacy because it's white people that created what the mold is for professionalism and then if you don't fit the mold that the white people created the white people get to evaluate you less or fire you or tell you they don't like you in their workplace or whatever it is and we're so good at it though cliff and I think so about good at it we're in a profession where that's part of our legacy as psychologists yep. thinking about intelligence testing and yeah. the people that created these assessments to measure someone's intellectual ability were older white men mm-hmm. and so it turns out when you assess people's intelligence people from different ethnic backgrounds did not look as bright they did not look as intelligent because a lot of the things that we considered intelligence were culturally bound and so there were a lot of minorities that were deemed as intellectually inferior or disabled. And that wasn't the case at all, but it was a biased assessment. But I think we're just so through our worldview where it's like, this is true for me, it's gonna be true for everybody. And I think in our country, society, if you're white, you haven't really needed to take a lot of perspective Mm-mm. to really recognize how much of your experience is culturally bound, how much of it's generalizable, Instead, you're evaluating everybody based on the advantages that you have. And it turns out when you do that, everybody does look inferior. And that isn't because they are, because I still go back to everyone is created equal. It's due to whoever's creating the assessments or the rules or the opportunities are kind of putting others at a disadvantage. Yeah, I think that's such a good point. Because it's like, if, if I look at my life and I say, okay, I've achieved this, and here's this other person and they've achieved less than me. And I'm making an assumption that we had equal opportunity. Then it's easy for me to think that they didn't work as hard or they aren't as disciplined. They don't show up to work on time. You know, I can think of a thousand reasons why they haven't achieved what I've achieved when I make the assumption that we had equal opportunity. But as soon as you recognize that, oh shoot, not everybody has equal opportunity. Well, then it calls into question why these disparities in achievement exist. And I think that goes back to what's uncomfortable for us. It's a lot more comfortable for me and everybody else to just say, well, yeah, if I've achieved more than you, it's because I worked harder. And it feels lousy. Like, it, it's an attack on your ego. Because I look at myself, it's like, I've worked hard. Um, I've got through a PhD program. I'm a professional. And I have worked hard. But to look at it, it's like, well, I might have had an easier path it kind of hits my ego where it's like, mm-hmm. wait a minute, I ain't all that. Like, mm-hmm. I'm not this amazing, incredible person. And it's like, you know, maybe not, you know, maybe you had a head start or, you know, even going to graduate school was a tremendous opportunity and privilege. Mm-hmm. And I didn't have this pressure hanging over me. Cause like, if that didn't work out, I could just do something else. I got family mm-hmm. support. I could live at home again. Mm-hmm. Like there's not this pressure hanging over me where it's like, um, you s- swim or you sink. Like, this has got to happen. Like, this is it. Um, It's like, oh, there's a lot of things I could do. But I think it doesn't feel good to be like, I got there because I might have had better opportunities. Um, We want to look at, I got there because I worked. And I hear that a lot. Mm -hmm. Um, 
because we want that credit and we nobody wants a handout i'm gonna steal that line from you um, as we were chatting right before you're like it doesn't feel good nobody wants that everybody wants to earn that yeah. and i've heard that same thing from people of color as well it's like i want to earn it too but it's just i don't have the same opportunities as other people have but i want to earn it right i think that's fundamental for all of us but when someone's starting at a, a place of disadvantage it's really difficult to kind of narrow that gap yeah for sure and in line with what you're saying if we think about examples of racism or examples of white supremacy something comes to mind that i think illustrates both in one and that is that there was a study done a few years back oh, maybe 10 years ago now it's, it's been a little while but they they did a study they put two resumes up on like monster.com and job placement sites or, or places where you post your uh, information and you apply for jobs they put two resumes up. They were exactly the same in every way, except they changed the name. And one name was like very white European American sounding. And one name was more African American sounding. And then they had those same resumes apply for a bunch of different jobs. And I think they had them apply for all the same jobs, but these applicant pools were big. So people probably didn't notice that yeah. like the exact same resume. <laughs> And what they found is that out of like a hundred jobs or whatever it was that this white sounding name got invited for, I don't know, let's say 50 like interviews or something. And the same exact resume, but with an African-American sounding name on it, got invited for like one third as many interviews. And so when we sit like for white people, when we sit back and we say like, well, I don't get it. I don't get you know, why do people of color need affirmative action? Like that's a handout to them. That's an advantage to them that I don't have as a white person. It's like, well, if you look at the data and you think about our history, the reason affirmative action came to be a thing is because there are so many disadvantages put in the way of people of color to begin with that the government decided that something had to be done to try to give them a little bit of a leg up to actually have an equal opportunity. But affirmative action was a long time ago. And that resume example I gave you was decades after affirmative action was put in place. But it shows that that disparity, that, that racism, that white supremacy is still in America. It's still in the fabric of our society today. I think what makes it so insidious is I bet none of that was intentional. Yeah. And I think if it was intentional, we'd say, well, that supervisor needs to be fired. But my guess is it's not intentional it's really unconscious that bias where it's like, I can pronounce this name. It sounds like names of people I know. This name I'm having a harder time pronouncing. It's, it's a little bit more different. And at a really unconscious level, we tend to favor one more than the other. So I think when we have a lot of reaction around racism, it's like, I'm not trying to hurt somebody. It's like, yeah, I think a lot of the racism we're talking about now is not intentional. And we can see the really overt stuff like the, kind of brutality we're seeing and people getting shot is like that's clearly not okay but it's this stuff that's unintentional that is still leading to these systematic disadvantages and that's hard to wrap our mind around where it's like we're not trying to do that and yet it's still happening right yeah yeah and that i yeah i totally agree because how do you prevent something or change something or improve something when you can't even see it when you're not even aware that it's there so I had a moment this week, so it's political season. So I don't affiliate with a political party, 
Um, I just can't. I, I just am not programmed to do that. Um, so I was watching the Democratic National Convention and several of the speakers talked about um, systematic racism. That was some of the language I heard in the Democratic Convention. And then the next week, it's Republican Convention. And I hear speakers say really directly, systematic racism does not exist in America. And I thought like, whoa, you know, what is going on here? One group, that's kind of like part of their platform and others, their platform is denying that it exists. And I think about like, if this is a really significant issue and we've got two major parties saying this is big and one saying it doesn't exist, how are we supposed to navigate this? Yeah. Like to what extent is this real or is this politicized versus this isn't there and we're just kind of making mountains out of molehills. Like how do we make sense of that when leaders of our country are saying two very different things? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> creates a real challenge. Was it Mark Twain who said something like there are two types of wise lies, white lies and statistics? There's some famous quote by someone that obviously I'm not smart enough to remember who it was, but um, I, the reason that popped in my head is because I feel like that's part of what politics does, you know, like there will be a, a statistic that comes out and the Democrats will take it and say, oh, this statistic proves X. And then the, the Republicans will take that same statistic and they'll oh. say, this proves the opposite of X. And it's like, well, what am I supposed to believe then? Because if you listen to both sides, you're living in completely different worlds. And yeah. so I don't, I mean, that issue, like both political parties really frustrate me. And yeah. in terms of my values, I lean more one way than the other, that's for sure. But I can't stand politics in general and I can't stand either political party. And I think they both, engage in the exact same types of things like taking statistics and twisting them for their own agenda and crap like that i think both sides do it equally and i know that everybody who is listening to this is probably mad at me now because they might affiliate with one side or the other and they're feeling like i'm ragging on their side and i'm i'm sorry if i've offended you but that's just my perception of it is that like all those tactics that democrats scream oh i can't believe republicans use these tactics like the Democrats use all those same tactics and the Republicans do the same. Oh, I can't believe the Democrats use these tactics. Well, your politicians use all those same tactics. And I think that's just part of the problem. It's like, yep. it's, it's a total mess. And, and you can't listen to both sides and find reconciliation in the middle. So I think that's why so many people pick a side. And then yeah. if you've picked one side, you obviously have to be wholeheartedly against the other. And that's the challenge is it almost felt like race was being used for political reasons instead of actually caring about people of color um, on both sides. And I, I think I struggled because listening to that Democratic convention, the things they were talking about race really resonated with me. Then a part of me is also like, but most of you are white people with lots of wealth and are trying to get an office. Mm -hmm. And then I, I maybe struggled more hearing how some of the Republican speakers talked about race, that didn't resonate with me, but it still felt like they were using that topic for political reasons. For political agenda. And it's like, oh no, these are, these are people that are living lives and not having opportunities and are living in fear of encounters with police or employment. Like these are real people 
There are real protests. Millions of them. Going on. Yes. Yeah. And I think about this is so real. And I hear politicians talking about it as talking points. Yeah. And I really struggle because as a psychologist, well, we're both in this camp. My connections are with people and individuals and the complexities of their identity. And for me, I, it feels like people are being, they're yeah. like ethnic background are being used as pawns in that whole political debate. And I don't feel like yeah. one side has got it and the other one's messed up. So I think if one side was right, there'd be people gravitating to that side the more they learned and progressed. But we don't see that. Um, yeah. We see these political parties pretty split. Um, yeah, I really struggle with that. It, and I feel for our country where you have to really take a side without being able to dialogue about it. And, and I see some value in like that Republican side saying, this doesn't exist. Because if systematic racism doesn't exist, I don't have to do anything about it. Mm-hmm. And everything I got in my life, it's because I worked for it and I earned it. And that feels really good. Mm-hmm. It kind of absolves us of responsibility. Yeah. But then I think about that democratic position where it's like, it is real. It's like, well, I don't really like that. Then. Yeah. <laughs> that means right. I need to do something. Like, I can see like there are both of those positions appeal to different types of emotions yep. and different types of situations. And it just doesn't sit well with me when that, when racism gets politicized. Yeah. Yeah. I understand that. Um, maybe this will be kind of a funny anecdote for us to end on for today. I was watching something. I think this was around the, I don't know, it was a governor race or something like that. And bless his heart, Charles Barkley was like mm. one of the panelists for this like political um, campaigning and fundraising and whatnot. So there's like four people there on a panel and Charles Barkley's one of them. I think it must've been like from his home state or something. That's why he was involved. Um, and he literally said, I don't remember word for word, but he literally said something like, the Democrats need to support like so-and-so this candidate and it's time for them to stop just saying they care about black people and actually prove that they care about black people. And I was like, go Charles Barkley. Like (laughs) it takes somebody like Charles Barkley to be honest and cut the crap and just be real about it. And I think that that's a fair grievance because if you look at the democratic party, it's like, okay, since the 1950s when the democratic party flipped and was no longer the party of anti-black racism like ever since then they've said like we are the party of equality and racial equality and this and that but look at their policies like when if you look at the policies what have they done what have they enacted for equality so i think it's a very fair grievance yeah i think that's where i struggle and maybe that's why we're keeping each other accountable it's one thing to have words and beliefs um actions are something completely different and I do like Chuck. I love the NBA. I think he's, um, I think he's really funny, but he says some things that are really insightful. And I've had so many sports examples. I know I need to wrap this up. I'll try to keep this super short. Um, But like when you brought up professionalism, I thought about the NBA. And for me, I view the NBA as one of the most progressive sports out there. And yet I thought about one of my favorite all-time players, Allen Iverson. Mm. Came into the league like a storm, like under six foot just lightning quick. He just played every possession like it was the last possession of his life. And I love it. I love it. But he comes in with cornrows and tattoos. Yeah. And the commissioner says, that's not professional. And all of a sudden, a dress code showed up. And the dress code was, yeah, you're going to wear a suit. Um, you're going to look white. But you can't say that. It's professionalism. Yep. 
yep. And I thought about how that's changed um, in the last even few months where it's like, whoa, our dress code that we thought was professional was maybe code for we want you to look a certain way and not like another certain way. Mm-hmm. And I thought about like the Clippers owner. Um, I can't remember his name, if it was Sterling. Um, that how that, that blew up a few years ago, the really yeah. overt racial things that he said. Yep. But then you look at the patterns about he was involved in housing development and discrimination there mm. and treated a lot of his players as property. That um, There's just a lot of power and differential there that is really destructive. And I think about like all these youth sports where there's these wrestlers that have dreads and it's like, you can't compete unless you cut your hair. Wow. See, we got, we got a, a requirement here for how you need to look. And that requirement is not taking into account someone's cultural background or different styles. It's you need to look white because that's professional. Yeah. And so for me, I love sports. I think a lot of progression happens in athletics because of people like Charles Barkley that can just kind of say things. But then people have a platform. And it's, um, yeah, this has been really close to my heart with another shooting today. Um, it happened today. And, and I listened to LeBron talk about that. Um, and it's heartbreaking and players in professional sports are saying we need to boycott this game and we can do that because we're multimillionaires mm-hmm. and we have that opportunity to defend ourselves in legal settings where other families don't have that opportunity they don't have that voice so i really appreciated when these professionals use their platform for good um, but they get a lot of backlash for that too where it's like oh you're just an athlete shut up and dribble um, yep. all that rhetoric Yep. And I really value, I mean, you're sticking your neck out on that line. Kaepernick did that. And we know the consequences with that. Mm-hmm. But even though these are multimillionaires, it's still really hard to do it in any circle to mm-hmm. really stand up. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I have a hard time stopping this, Cliff, because when I talk yeah. about these things, it just gets me going. Like, there needs to be action. And then when it gets into this political realm where we're just using this to secure votes, it's like, no, like we really need to care at that personal level yeah. because those systematic injustices really impacts people's mental health. And that is something that I care deeply about. And if we had more of those equal opportunities, and the other thing I think that really erodes people's mental health is invalidating their experiences. Absolutely. That what you're going through with oppression or lack of opportunities does not exist. Yeah. Saying this does not exist is going to directly impact people's mental health. Absolutely. Saying this reality you live and breathe every day does not exist. It's like that invalidation really disrupts our mental well-being. I'll pause. Whew, whew. Turn it over to you, Cliff. I think due to time, we should just leave it there. I think that's a great place to wrap up because you and I can keep going for hours and hours. So we'll pick up in there. We got more to say around race. And I promise y'all, we're going to get to some other topics of identity. Um, But with race, I feel like this is an opportunity right now in our country to learn more, to dialogue around this, to have tough conversations. And in the end, these are individuals. These are not groups. These are not platforms. These are not statements. Um, The things we say and the things we do directly impact people. And even if it's not intentional, it can still be harmful. Um, and so my hope is, as we recognize things we've done, it's probably not intentional, probably not overt. We recognize like, oh, that might've had an impact. 
um, that we can take that as a learning opportunity and an opportunity to make it better. And hopefully not do what I often do, where I get defensive and be like, ah, I, it was your fault, or I didn't mean that. But to really say, wow, you're right. I messed up there. I apologize. I want to be better. Thank you for that. And I think we can, when we can get to that spot, we're going to be moving in a good direction. And right there, we really struggle with that first step of taking responsibility, giving ourselves some grace and some others some grace, and then learning from that and moving forward. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's a great way to wrap it up. Awesome. Well, thanks for hanging out with me, Cliff. I'll see you again next week. Yeah, good to see you. Night, Cameron. Hey, thanks for listening. Please remember to rate and subscribe. I know you might be facing some issues in your life or know someone who is. Issues like anxiety, challenges in dealing with emotions, or other compulsive behaviors like unwanted pornography. And I know it's tough to talk to people about problems. Difficult to stare those obstacles down that we face in life and to really know how to deal with them. It's hard to know what to say and when to say it. And then when that moment you finally reach out to family and friends happens, sometimes it falls flat. I haven't found many programs teaching effective strategies like mindfulness, how to improve relationships, and ways to address unwanted pornography viewing through research-supported principles. So whether you simply want to help with a problem like unwanted pornography, difficulty responding to emotions, or just want to understand the world of someone struggling with porn a little better, head over to lifeafterpornography.com and get in on the next training. There you'll learn the exact same strategies individuals addicted to pornography used to transform their lives by implementing principles from evidence-based treatment shown effective in research for reducing unwanted pornography viewing. You'll learn the secrets, the myths, the enemies to recovery, and the LAP framework for dealing with unwanted porn viewing that we call WAVE. If that's something that interests you, click the link in the description or just head over to lifeafterpornography.com. I'm Dr. Cameron Staley. See you on the inside.